the old pilot's plain tales, Wooden Wonders and Aluminium Overcast, Part 1. When taking the fight to Hitler during the Second World War, two air forces took radically different approaches. Both produced new aircraft with a very similar bomb load, but one was machined from metal, bristled with defensive armament, and carried a crew of ten, whilst the other was made of wood and canvas, built by piano makers, and carried a crew of two. As the war approached across in the United States, the Air Corps was looking for an aircraft that would carry a useful bomb load at 10,000 feet and 200 knots for 10 hours. Boeing, Douglas and Martin would conduct a fly-off and the Army Air Corps were very interested in Boeing's Model 229 despite the evaluation aircraft crashing when it took off with its gust lock still engaged and it being almost twice the cost of the Douglas aircraft. It was, however, legally disqualified from the competition, but not before a Seattle Times reporter had started calling it a flying fortress. The fortress was a four-engined heavy bomber that used General Electric turbo superchargers on its right cyclone engines. Its robust all-metal construction gave it an empty weight of over 36,000 pounds, around 16.3 metric tons, and its bomb load was 4,500 pounds for missions over 800 miles. Renowned for its defensive armament, it had machine guns positioned at the nose, tail, with four others at the mid-fuselage point, an upper, a lower, and two from the waist. Following the discovery of a legal loophole, production of the aircraft, now designated the B-17, went ahead, and a number entered service for operational evaluation. Although more were requested, by Pearl Harbor, less than 200 were in service. The aircraft went through various improvements until it bristled with 13 guns, including remote chin and ventral turrets. This was a formidable defensive power, but even more so when combined with the firepower of an entire bomb group formation flying in a combat box. Luftwaffe fighters couldn't attack without dozens of machine guns engaging them from many aircraft. Such a tactic, however, relied on individual aircraft not evading as the entire formation had to fly constantly in a straight line. The B-17 was noted for its ability to absorb battle damage and still reach its target and bring its crew home safely. Wally Hoffman, a B-17 pilot, said, The plane can be cut and slashed almost to pieces by enemy fire and bring its crew home. The Luftwaffe assessed that it took around 20 hits by 20mm shells to bring down the B-17, and on average their pilots only hit with about 2% of shots fired. This meant that a fighter had to fire around 1,000 rounds to be effective, and they usually carried only half that. To cope with the threat that the B-17 represented, changes were made, such as the Focke-Wulf doubling its complement of cannons. Whilst the combat box formation improved loss rates, it presented a rich target for flak, and fighters modified their tactics to include high-speed slashing attacks and frontal engagements. 
As a result, the B-17's loss rates were as high as 25% on some early missions. On the first raid on the ball-bearing factories at Schweinfurt, 36 out of 291 aircraft were lost, killing 200 men. And it wasn't until the advent of long-range fighter escorts, particularly the P-51 Mustang, did the B-17 become strategically potent. However, despite extended fighter cover and improved defensive firepower, the tactics of daylight bombing incurred a punishing loss rate. From the second Schweinfurt attack, 650 men did not return, and out of 291 bombers, only 33 landed undamaged. Other raids also became notorious. In October 1943, the 8th Air Force alone lost 176 bombers, and in January the next year, similar losses were to occur. Albert Speer, in his book Inside the Third Reich, commented that there were 300 King Tiger tanks at Munich Rail Station waiting to be moved to the front, but because of raids on German oil factories, they had neither the railways nor the fuel to move them. However, those raids on the oil factories took their toll. In total, 922 B-17s were lost, with nearly 10,000 men killed, wounded, or captured. With the loss rates that the B-17 suffered in the European theater, some bomber groups suffered from morale problems. With death rates from single raids rising to the hundreds, it took strong leadership from the group commanders to pull their units back into a fighting force that could both protect itself and inflict meaningful damage on the enemy. However, in February 1944, the third raid on Schweinfurt highlighted what was to become known as the Big Week. The Mustangs and Thunderbolt escorting fighters had been equipped with extra long-range tanks that could accompany the bombers through the whole mission. The fighters reduced the loss rate to below 7%, but this still meant that 247 B-17s would be lost that week. The combined bombing strategy that the RAF and 8th Air Force took to the enemy was winning. It ensured that day and night targets were being attacked and the Luftwaffe had no rest, but it was taking a terrible toll in men and machines. The Flying Fortress became a symbol of the tenacity of the United States, a stubborn willingness to defeat the enemy, and its pilots loved it. It was preferred to the B-24 for its greater stability and ease of formation flying. It was also less vulnerable to damage, and it flew better with a failed engine, making it back to base on numerous occasions despite extensive damage, such that its durability became mythical. The B-17, named All-American, survived having had its tail almost completely severed, but it returned safely, giving rise to the saying, coming home on a wing and a prayer. Other aircraft also gained great fame. Memphis Bell was one of the first B-17s to complete an entire tour of duty of 25 missions. An old 666 was flown by the most highly decorated crew in the Pacific Theater. 
Rose's Riveters was the lone surviving 100th Group B-17 to come home from the raid against Munster and return to its base at RAF Thorpe Abbots. It did so, two engines dead, the intercom, an oxygen system inoperative, and a large ragged hole in the right wing. Along with the remarkable stories of aircraft survival came stories of the men who flew them. 17 B-17 crew members received the highest military award given by the United States, the Medal of Honor. Notable amongst them was Brigadier General Frederick Castle, the air commander of over 2,000 bombers on a strike, who died at the controls so that his crew could escape the crippled aircraft, and Second Lieutenant David Kingsley, who tended his injured crew before unhesitatingly giving his parachute to another, thereby giving his life. Perhaps one of the best documented was a desperate flight of survival by Lieutenant Edward Mitchell. The story of his bravery lies within his citation. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty while serving as a pilot of a B-17 aircraft on a heavy bombardment mission to Germany, April the 11th, 1944, the group in which First Lieutenant Mitchell was flying was attacked by a swarm of fighters. His plane was singled out and the fighters pressed their attacks home recklessly, completely disregarding the Allied fighter escort and their own intense flak. His plane was riddled from nose to tail with exploding cannon shells and knocked out of formation with a large number of fighters following it down, blasting it with cannon fire as it descended. A cannon shell exploded in the cockpit, wounded the co-pilot, wrecked the instruments and blew out the side window. First Lieutenant Mitchell was seriously and painfully wounded in the right thigh. Hydraulic fluid filmed over the windshield, making visibility impossible, and smoke filled the cockpit. The controls failed to respond, and 3,000 feet were lost before he succeeded in levelling off. The radio operator informed him that the whole bomb bay was in flames as a result of the explosion of three cannon shells, which had ignited the incendiaries. With a full load of incendiaries in the Bombay and a considerable gas load in the tanks, the danger of fire enveloping the plane and the tanks exploding seemed imminent. When the emergency release lever failed to function, First Lieutenant Mitchell at once gave the order to bail out and seven of his crew left the plane. Seeing the bombardier firing the navigator's gun at the enemy planes, First Lieutenant Mitchell ordered him to bail out as the plane was liable to explode any minute. When the bombardier looked for his parachute, he found that it had been riddled with 20mm fragments and was useless. First Lieutenant Mitchell, seeing the ruined parachute, realized that if the plane was abandoned, the bombardier would perish and decided that the only chance would be a crash landing. Completely disregarding his own painful and profusely bleeding wounds, but thinking only of the safety of the remaining crew members, he gallantly evaded the enemy, using violent evasive action, despite the battered condition of his plane. After the plane had been under sustained enemy attack for fully 45 minutes, First Lieutenant Mitchell finally lost the persistent fighters in a cloud bank. Upon emerging, an accurate barrage of flak caused him to come down to treetop level, where flak towers poured a continuous rain of fire on the plane. 
He continued into France, realizing that at any moment a crash landing might have to be attempted, but trying to get as far as possible to increase the escape possibilities if a safe landing could be achieved. Mitchell flew the plane until he became exhausted from the loss of blood, which formed in the floor in pools, and he lost consciousness. The co-pilot succeeded in reaching England and sighting an RAF field near the coast, Mitchell finally regained consciousness and insisted on taking over the controls to land the plane. The undercarriage was useless, the Bombay doors were jammed open, the hydraulic system and altimeter were shot out. In addition, there was no airspeed indicator. The ball turret was jammed with the guns pointing downwards and the flaps would not respond. Despite these apparently insurmountable obstacles, he landed the plane without mishap. Edward Mitchell's bravery seemed only to be matched by the strength of his remarkable aircraft. Another Medal of Honor winner, Snuffy Smith, however, was not a typical hero, as he quickly gained a reputation as a stubborn and obnoxious airman who did not get along well with the others. Consequently, it was six weeks before he was assigned his first combat mission. When he finally got airborne, Star Sergeant Smith's bomber was hit, rupturing the fuel tanks and igniting a massive fire in the center of the fuselage. The damage to the aircraft was severe. Systems had failed and the very structure of the aircraft was at risk. When Smith's ball turret lost power, he scrambled out to assist the other crew members. Three bailed out, but Smith tended to two others who were seriously wounded. The heat from the fire was so intense that it began to melt the fuselage, threatening to break the plane in half. For nearly 90 minutes, Smith alternated between shooting at the attacking fighters, tending his wounded crew members, and fighting the fire. To starve the fire of fuel, he threw burning debris and exploding ammunition through the large holes that the fire had melted in the fuselage. After the fire extinguishers were exhausted, Smith finally managed to put the fire out, in part by urinating on it. Staff Sergeant Smith's bomber reached England and landed at the first available airfield, where it broke in half as it touched down. The bomber had been hit with more than 3,500 bullets and pieces of shrapnel. As a final touch, Smith was doing KP duty the week that he was awarded the Medal of Honor as punishment for arriving late to a briefing. For the United States, the B-17 was a versatile aircraft that served in dozens of units and in many theaters of combat throughout World War II. However, its main contribution was in Europe, where its shorter range and smaller bomb load didn't hamper it. However, during the time the 8th Air Force operated in Europe, over 3,300 B-17s would be lost, but their bomb groups would have dropped half a million tons of ordnance on the enemy. Despite its limitations, however, more than 12,000 would be produced to serve the American forces and many other countries around the world. Production ceased in 1945. This is a story of two aircraft, and whilst Boeing was constructing an armoured porcupine, across the Atlantic, Jeffrey de Havilland was taking a different approach to his bomber's design. But to find out about that, you'll have to listen to the next instalment of The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. <laughs>